Good evening, friends. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, please turn to Genesis 19. Or if you have your worship guide, that works That works well. The passage is printed right there. Um, by the way, if you're joining us online, uh, you can find the worship guide on the front page of our website. There's a link to it there. We encourage you to to take a look at that. <clears throat> Before I read the scripture, there's something that I would like us to try today. Uh, there's something, an, an old tradition that's old within the church and also so old that we even find it in the Bible that I'd like to have us give a try at practicing. One of the things that I've talked about before and certainly this won't be the last time, is the nature of preaching, what it is that I'm doing here right now in this time. And part of it is teaching. That's important. But the sermon, that's not all it is. Now, this is really not a teaching time. This is an interactive worship time. And what I'm doing here is not imparting to you guys, hopefully, I'm not imparting to you my ideas, but I want to be a messenger. I want to relay a message that already stands on its own, a message from God, which is what we find in the Scriptures. Now, there's an old tradition in the church and even in the Bible uh, where as a, as a way for the church to recognize that this time is interactive and also as a way for us together to show reverence for God's words here being proclaimed, not Pastor Charlie's words. The tradition is during the sermon, when they read the scripture, for the congregation to stand. We see this in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest stands and he opens the word and the whole assembly of Israel rose to their feet. Now in our service, sometimes we sit, sometimes we stand. And if it's okay with you, I would really like us during the sermon time to stand for the reading of the word. Let's start that today. So would you stand? Let's read God's word. Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, and he said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters whom have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. 
This fellow has come to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And they brought them out, and one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. L let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke from a furnace. So it was that, when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well... This is a bit of a sobering one. Um, this is not happy bedtime Bible story. Uh, this is big scary Bible story, isn't it? These are the kind of passages that new pastors at churches uh, maybe probably shy away from because when you're brand new at a church, uh, maybe it's not good to start out preaching fire and brimstone. <laughs> But the problem is fire and brimstone is right here in the text. It's not a problem. Uh, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us here together to, to deal with one of the hard things in Scripture. 
You know, sometimes the hard, what seems like the hardest things in Scripture, when you take time to look at them and to listen to them, we find out that the hardness that's there, the big scary, uh, is a little different than maybe we would have thought on the front end. One of the things that we've been talking about throughout this series is we've recognized that in Abraham's life, uh, many of the stories in his life have become cultural folktales for us. Uh, if you're like me and you grew up in church, or, you know, going to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, watching Bible movies, um, all that kind of stuff, then there's versions of this story that might have slipped through that are more cultural than biblical. And this story, just like the part one of this story that we did two weeks ago, is one of those. There's a folktale version of the destruction of Sodom that is, some of the truth there is included here, but the, the biblical story is a, is a lot broader. And there are things there that if we shied away from this text, because the folktale version, hellfire and brimstone, is uncomfortable, there's good news we would miss. There's beauty we would miss. There's gospel we would miss. So what I want to do during this time is I want to show you the gospel in this story. I want to show you the beauty of Christ in this. I want to do that as a messenger. I want to, the beauty of Christ that the Holy Spirit has put in this story, I want to relay that to you. So to do that, uh, I want to ask three big questions. First, why did God destroy Sodom? Second, why did God rescue Lot? And third, what are we supposed to do with this? Now, every week we've been asking, who is Abraham's God in this story? And when we come to this story and we examine it closely, we see that God reveals himself in a beautiful way. We see that he is the God of judgment and salvation. He's a righteous judge. He's also a merciful rescuer. That's who he is. So here's what we're dealing with. Why did God destroy Sodom? Why did God rescue Lot? And what does that have to do with us? Okay. So basically what we have here in this story, it's kind of a part two. Uh, uh, it's kind of a continuation. Two weeks ago, uh, last week we had a break because of the installation, but two weeks ago we saw that God had come to Abraham, right? God had appeared to him, and he appeared to Abraham as three men, and we wrestled with the mystery. Is it is it the Lord or is it three men? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, and the three men came, and they had spoken a blessing over Abraham. They had told them that, that it's about time that this, the long-awaited, long-promised son is, is about to be born, and that's really good. Abraham had prepared for them a feast. And then they said, uh, the, the Lord said to Abraham, he, he said, uh, well, he talked amongst himself, uh, which is part of that three men, one Lord mystery. And he said, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? Yeah, let's tell him. And then they said, we've heard an outcry from Sodom. Now, Sodom was the big city on the Jordan Valley. There were other cities like Gomorrah 
And But generally, they're just sort of referred to as Sodom, sort of like this is referred to as Portland, even though it includes Vancouver and Milwaukee and Beaverton. We, so that's kind of what we're dealing with. There's a cluster of cities on the plain, and, and Sodom is the flagship city. And God says, I'm going to destroy. No, he doesn't say. He said, I'm going to go down and check out. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to look at Sodom because I've heard this outcry. And their sin is very great. And then we saw two weeks ago, Abraham starts like trying to negotiate with God. Like, whoa, uh, you're not going to destroy the city, are you? Uh, there's righteous people there. You, you can't destroy the whole city and wipe away the white righteous also. And then he starts to barter. God, what if there's 50 righteous? And he realizes that's a little bold. 45, 30, 20, 10. Finally, Abraham gets to... Lord, if there's 10 righteous, will you destroy the city? And God says, I'm not going to destroy the city if there's 10 righteous people. And then it kind of ends. Well, now, in this story, we see uh, a continuation and also kind of a parallel to what we saw before. This time, instead of three men showing up, it's two men. Now, is it two of the three from before? Maybe. Uh, but it says in the text that they were angels, the Hebrew word there in 19 verse 1 is malachim, which is angel or messenger. The Hebrew and Greek word for angel also mean messenger. So two messengers, two angelic messengers from God show up at Sodom. And kind of like the story before, Lot meets them, sort of like Abraham met the three men before. It says that Lot was sitting in the gate of the city. Now, that means that he was some kind of ruler or judge or civil leader in Sodom. And that should catch our attention because Lot, being Abraham's nephew, he's not native to Sodom. He had He's new to Sodom. And now he's sort of a leader in the city. So he meets God's messengers. He receives them. He bakes them bread, sort of like Abraham baked bread for God's, for the three men that were the Lord. Uh, he sits down and he eats with them. And then the parallel to the Abraham story breaks down. In Abraham's story, they had this beautiful time of communion and fellowship and talking about God's blessing, and it was wonderful. But here, something very different happens. We finish eating just before bedtime. It says all the men of the city, every last one of them, young and old, surround the house. And they start demanding, Lot, bring out the visitors so that we may know them. Now, when we read the ESV Bible or the King James Bible, and it says uh, that somebody knows somebody, that, that's not the same thing as like, you know, knowing somebody's name. That's an intimate knowing. These men had come to sexually assault Lot's visitors. And they make the demand. And Lot, distressed by their wickedness, goes out. He says, men, stop acting so wickedly. But then Lot, being morally compromised himself, offers what he thinks is a better alternative. Here, take my daughter's. And we read that and we think, oh, that is messed up. How compromised is Lot, this person who's 
Abraham's nephew, this person that should know better, that would think that giving his daughters to this gang of men trying to do something terrible. When did Lot think this was better? And we sort of get a picture of how Lot's conscience while living in Sodom had become dull. His sense of right and wrong was all disoriented. And then the two messengers, the angels, the men inside the house, it says that they reached out and they grabbed Lot and they pulled him into the house and then they struck the men of the city with blindness. In the text, the word there, for blindness is not the kind of blindness like somebody who has a vision disability. This is the kind of blindness that comes when somebody shines a bright light in your eyes. This is blinded by the light blindness. Now, if they were angels, maybe they showed their angelic glory to the men. Maybe that was it. But either way, there was a great light and the men were struck with blindness. And it says they wore themselves out groping for the door. They tell Lot, go get your family, get anybody that you want to be rescued and take them out of here. Now, all of this happened just after dinner. And it says that Lot went to found, find his, his two son, to future sons-in-law. And he said, guys, let's get out of here. God's going to destroy the city. And they laughed at him. They thought he was joking. So Lot comes home, and next thing we know, it's just before morning, which means that Lot didn't just go to his sons-in-law. Maybe he went all around the city telling people, let's get out of here. Or maybe, you know, it says in the story, he lingered. Maybe he paced back and forth on the streets in between all the people groping around, trying to figure out, oh, no, what do I do? The city that I love, this is horrible. Is this real? Am I dreaming this? What's going on? But we know that Lot didn't stand up and go right away with the messengers. He got caught up in the madness. But finally, either he comes home and the messengers find him, it says that they seized him because he lingered. They grabbed a hold of him and they said, come with us, let's get out of here. God's gonna destroy the city. And they drag Lot and his wife and his daughters out of the city. And they start to run, and Lot says, don't make me go to the hills. I, I, I'm not a hill person. Send me to the city of Zoar. It's small. It's not as bad as Sodom. Please send me. I just, please, 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 please don't let me go to the hills. And they say, okay, go to the other city. But hurry up, because we're going to destroy Sodom. And then we see that fire and brimstone this biblical, these are biblical metaphors that we see, not, not to say it didn't happen, it did happen. But this fire and brimstone, we hear that and we think culturally and biblically, oh, this is more than, this is more than a natural disaster. This is, this is the wrath of God. And it says the fire and brimstone rained down from God in heaven on the city and it destroyed the city and everything in it. And Lot and his daughters are in safety, but then Lot's wife, such a sad story, says she looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She too was overtaken. And then when all of this happens in the story, at the very end, the scene changes. You can imagine if this was a film, the, you know, the darkening of one scene and the lightning of another, the scene changes to Abraham the main character of this whole thing, right? And he's standing 
Where? He's standing in the place where he had previously pleaded for the life of Sodom, really for the life of the righteous people in Sodom. He's standing in that place of intercession, and he looks down and he sees the smoke rising up. And that's the story. So why did God do this? Why did God destroy Sodom? Well, we see in the text here and in other places where Sodom is mentioned in Scripture, we see that God destroyed Sodom for really one particular huge glaring reason. And it was that Sodom was a sinful city against the Lord. First time we really hear anything about Sodom is in Genesis 13, right at the beginning of Abraham's story. Actually, right when Lot left Abraham's camp and went to settle in the valley near Sodom, he ends up in Sodom, but he starts off near Sodom and it says that, that Sodom was a very wicked city and the men of Sodom were great sinners against the Lord. Now that's significant, that word against. Sin is, I had somebody tell me one time that sin is just, it's like missing the mark. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like maybe you shoot a basket and it just, it just barely, it's not quite high enough. It misses the rim. We're just missing the mark of God's righteousness. And there's some truth to that, but that's not really a great metaphor. Sin is being and act, acting and being against God. It's violence to who God is. And it comes in two ways. Either a straight-up transgression of God's commands. God says one thing and you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm doing something else. Direct disobedience. Or it could come to a passive lack of conformity to God's laws. Sin is really something that has infected the world since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned against God and declared independence from him. It says in Romans 5 that sin entered the world through the transgression of one man, that man being Adam. And because of that, all men, all men and women, all kids, all people are caught up in sin. Sin is against God. Now, God is life. God is wholeness. God is beauty. God is light. And when we turn against life, wholeness, beauty, and light, all that's left is death, brokenness, ugliness, and darkness. So it says in Romans chapter 3 that the wages of sin is death. And this is the case all through Scripture. You know, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. That one tree I'm telling you not to eat from, don't do it, because if you do it, you will die. And they eat the tree, and they don't die right away. And sometimes we read the Bible, and we think, hmm, that's a little weird. But if you keep, that happens in Genesis 3, if you keep reading the next chapter, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, we have genealogies of all the people that came after Adam and Eve, and the genealogies go like this. So-and-so was born, so-and-so lived, and so-and-so died. 
so-and-so was born, so-and-so lived, so-and-so died. And we read after Adam and Eve's great sin that reaped, that brought down death into the world, that generation after generation after generation of people live and then they die because the wages of sin is death. And here we get to this story of Sodom, this, this uh, city with a great reputation for wickedness. And we see that their wickedness, sowing the seeds of sin, reaps a harvest of death. And it's because Sodom rejected God and his people. You know, the folktale, one of our cultural folktale versions of this story, takes Sodom's sin and rebellion against God and narrows it to one particular sin that's listed here in the text. Here in the text, we see the men of Sodom gathered around wanting uh, to sexually assault the men inside the house. There's same-sex sexual activity that's going on in Sodom. And in, um, in the book of Jude, in the book of Ezekiel, same-sex sexual activity is, is highlighted as one of the sins in Sodom. But we have this cultural folktale and it, part of that act that Scripture condemns is actually called by Sodom's name. And we want to minimize. That's the only reason that Sodom was so bad. And we talked about two weeks ago how we have taken the Scriptures and we've made the Sodom story about those people. But when we ignore the folktale and try to read the Scripture for what it says, we see that those people is actually us because same-sex sexual activity is not the only sin mentioned or highlighted of Sodom. Lack of hospitality is highlighted here in this story. The prophet Ezekiel highlights pride in the hoarding of food. The hoarding of food and other riches, prosperous ease, oppression of the poor, right alongside sexual immorality. So why did God destroy Sodom? Well, because Sodom was sinful. They were against the Lord, and their sin was multifaceted. It was multilayered, and it was the kind of sin that we ourselves struggle with and that our city struggles with. So we read this, and we see we ask, why did God destroy Sodom? And we should feel trepidation. We should not read this in a proud way, as if it's about someone else. We should read this with holy fear. Because Sodom, that's, that's kind of us. Now, there's another part of this. God destroys Sodom because they're sinful, and the wages of sin is death. But it's, we need to remember that God doesn't destroy them. Here's another thing the folktale version of this leaves out. God doesn't destroy them before he himself goes down there. He goes down there. He tells Abraham in the last chapter, I'm going to go down. I heard an outcry. I'm going to go down and see what's going on. Now, God is uh, omniscient. He knows everything. Did God need to go down there 
No. Why did God go down there in the form of two messengers to see what was going on? Well, I believe that's God's way of showing us that he's fair. He's empathetic. He weighs all sides. God doesn't do condemnation without a trial. So why did God destroy Sodom? Well, they were sinful, and the wages of sin is death, but also because he is a righteous, trustworthy judge. And you know what? That's really good. Sometimes images from Sodom, folktale images of Sodom, are used to condemn those people, whether that's the gay community or people who indulge in other kinds of sexual immorality. We hold up Sodom as, see, see what's coming to you. See how angry God is at you. See how much God hates you. God doesn't. God hated Sodom, he wouldn't have gone down there to hear their cries. God is not cruel. He's fair. He's righteous. He's empathetic. And he reaches out relationally to people who have brought condemnation down on themselves. And we see that in this story. The men, the angelic messengers said, we want to spend the night in the town square. We want to be here in the place where the whole city has access to us. Lot says, that's a terrible idea. But that's God's intention. Going down, making himself accessible to Sodom. And when the men come to try to tear down the door to bring out the angelic messengers, they're blinded with glorious light. They're blinded with the vision of the truth of God's own glory. They don't die in ignorance. God doesn't condemn them in their sin without giving them the truth about who he is and who they are. God is a righteous judge. <clears throat> you know, this is, um, throughout the scriptures, Sodom is used uh, and brought up in various parts of the Bible um, as a picture of the kind of judgment that's coming for the whole world. You know, everybody in the world is infected with sin, and Sodom is referenced as a picture of the coming destruction of God's judgment. And when it's referenced, it's universal. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah references God's coming judgment related to Sodom is something that's coming for Babylon, the, the big bad guys in the Bible, <laughs> for Edom, Israel's neighbors. And then the prophet Ezekiel talks about the judgment of Sodom as a picture of God's judgment that's coming for Israel, even for God's people who reject God. So, the destruction of Sodom. We should read this and we should think. We should know God destroyed them because of sin and we should read it with holy fear because God, the righteous judge, who does all the investigative work, who does all the due diligence of reaching out to us, God, the righteous judge, responds to sin in a way that is holy and that is right. And when we are left in our sins against God, doing what's right in our own eyes, that puts us in a place of great danger. 
So why did God destroy Sodom maybe isn't the best question for this passage. Maybe the best question is, why has God not destroyed everybody else? Why did God rescue Lot? So let's talk about it. Why did God rescue Lot? You know, I don't think I would have rescued Lot. I think if I'm honest, I don't like him very much. Uh, here's a guy who steps out of his house, condemns the men in the city for what they're doing, stop acting so wickedly, and says, here's my daughters. That's not the kind of person I would rescue, but God rescues him. Why? Why would God do that? Well, we see from the Bible two big reasons. The first one is we see here in this text and the one just before it we did two weeks ago, and it's because Abraham prayed. <laughs> because Abraham, it's amazing. Here's Lot, a scoundrel of a man. And Abraham prays, Lord, don't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And God says, all right. And he rescues Lot. And, and we know it's because Abraham prayed because the story, this story, right before it, we have Abraham praying. And right after it, we have Abraham standing in the place where he prayed. He's framed in the story as an advocate for the righteous in the city. And so God rescues Lot because of Abraham's prayer. Now, this is incredible. The wages of sin is death. But because God's man stands and prays for his nephew, God rescues him. Now, we prayed before in Jesse's prayer, we prayed for family members and friends that don't know the Lord. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard for me. I know it's hard for you. We have friends and family members who don't know God, who don't know him, who have rejected him who would rather live in their own way, live in sin, than turn to him. And man, that keeps us up at night, and we love them, and we hurt for them, and we want them to know God, but we can't argue them into faith. We can tell them, but we can't make them believe. But you know what we can do? We can pray. And we see in this story, right at the beginning of the Bible, that God hears those prayers. When we pray for our family members, when we pray for our friends that don't know God, God hears, and even though God's eternal decree is fixed, and even though God never changes, when we pray, he does things in response to our prayer. How that works, we don't know. It's mysterious. That's just a little piece of encouragement we find in this story. Abraham prays that God would save the righteous in the city, and God saves Lot. Now that brings up another question. Um, was Lot righteous? <laughs> he doesn't act like it. Well, you know, based on Abraham's prayer, we got to conclude that he was. And also the passage that we read a second ago in 2 Peter 2, 7, and 8, it says that Lot was righteous. It says in 2 Peter that we read three times in two verses that Lot was a righteous man. 
So why did God save Lot? Well, because Abraham prayed and because Lot was righteous. Well, how does that work? How can Lot be righteous when he did such a terrible thing, when he didn't want to leave the city, when even when he left the city, he begged to go to another sinful city? How can Lot be righteous when he treats his kids the way he does, when he himself sits in the seat of, 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 uh, of a civil magistrate? at the gate in Sodom. How is that possible? Well, the ex it's possible that he's righteous in the exact same way that Abraham was righteous. Folks, remember the folktale versions of these stories want to paint Abraham as a really good guy that God's using to kind of save the world. Well, we read Abraham's story so far. Is Abraham the kind of guy that you, that you want to like... Uh, you, you want to like babysit your kids on a weekend and you want to hang out with them all the time? Not really. He, was, he sold out his wife to the king of Egypt. He took the money. He, they had a servant, a slave, an African slave in their house that he sexually assaulted. And he used his power to get her in bed so that he, she would have a son that he would call his own. And yeah, it was a cultural norm. It was still wrong. But he's righteous. How? Would you remember a few chapters ago? God comes and he makes this covenant with Abraham that God's going to bless this sinful world through Abraham's offspring. God's going to give Abraham a new land. He's going to give him a son and descendants, and he's going to turn that into a great nation. And it's, it's going to bless the world. And it says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And thus far in the scriptures, that's the only formula we have been given of how people become righteous. And really in the scriptures, that's the only formula for how people become righteous because every single person except for Jesus himself is a sinner. So Lot is righteous the only way he could be a righteous man is if he's righteous not because of his works, not because he does good things, but because he believes God and believes God's promise that somehow he's going to save the world through Abraham's offspring. Because that's how Abraham, the only other bad guy that's been made righteous thus far that we know the details about, that's how he became righteous. So that has to be how Lot becomes righteous. He believes. Now, there is kind of a folktale that goes around that says what the Bible is really about is that uh, people who do good things enjoy God's favor, and one day they die and go to heaven, and people who do bad things uh, reap God's wrath, and one day they die and go to hell. And here's a story of Sodom. The guy that did good things got rescued, and the people that did bad things got destroyed. Well, we've read the story enough to know that that folktale is not true. Every single person does bad things. It says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on to say, there is no one righteous in and of themselves, not one. So why did God destroy Sodom? Because it was a wicked city against the Lord, just like everybody else. But why did God rescue Lot?
because Abraham prayed, God's man prayed for him, and because Lot believed. Folks, this is great news for us. I don't know, because I'm new, because I'm your new pastor, maybe you don't know this yet, uh, but I'm not a great, I'm not a good person. <laughs> I, I have done, and I continue to do bad things. And I'm willing to bet the same, I, I'm, you know, I'm just getting to know you guys, and I like you, but I'm willing to bet that you're not good people either. That you've done some bad things and you continue to do bad things. Folks, and if we're trying to be here as a church and we're trying to earn God's favor by just doing good things, it's never going to happen. And in fact, when we act like we can earn God's favor by just doing enough good things to earn his favor, it makes us look a lot like Lot, where we stand denying our own sinfulness and we act like we're better than other people. That's why the men of Sodom said, who made you the judge? You're just like us. Okay, why did God destroy Sodom? Why did he rescue Lot? Do you see where all this is heading? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, it's so easy for us to treat the Bible like a collection of morality stories. Here's what we got to do to be good people. And it's so easy for us to treat the Christian life like God has just, he's given us this charge to go out there and just be the best people we can and hopefully things get better. And folks, that's not the way it works. The Bible, and this story especially, is not a morality book. It has morality in it, but that's not really what it's about. It's a Jesus book. In our faith, Christianity, what we're doing here, is not really a morality-driven thing. It's a Jesus-driven thing. And the salvation that we long for, the salvation that we hold on to, doesn't come because we decide to be good people. And we differentiate ourselves from other sinners we think are worse than us. It only comes when we believe God's messenger, Jesus Christ. And he grabs a hold of us. Yea, though we linger. <laughs> And he takes us and our families and leads us out of the city. And even though while we walk with him, we say, Lord, Lord, I love this world. I love all this stuff. Please, 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 please let me at least stay in the city. He bears with us. What we're doing here as a church, what I hope to do with you for countless many years to come, is not trying to be good people. It's trying to be believing people that are held on to by God's messenger who comes to rescue us. And I have confidence that as we go about doing this thing before us, being hold on to Jesus people, that we will endure. We will endure when God's judgment comes and things get really hard and we will endure when God's judgment is held off for a while and things get really great. You know why? Because we're not here because we're good people. And because also we can look up with our eyes of faith and we can see that God's man, Jesus Christ, has not only got a hold of us, he's also ascended in glory praying for us by name. So we can endure to the end. 
So here's the big question we end with. What are we supposed to do with this? Let's make it personal. What are you going to do with this? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as God's rescuing messenger? Is he praying for you at God's right hand? Have you been made righteous because you believe, not because of what you do? Or are you just trying to be good people, hoping that somehow you escape the wrath? Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, bearing the full outpouring of God's wrath for his people in order to grab a hold of us and rescue us. And the way you get in is the same way Lot got in, by believing. So I want to invite you, if you've never submitted to that belief, let it be today. Look to Jesus with all of your heart. And if you are wrestling with the assurance of your salvation, you know you're not a good person and you wonder, oh, am I going to die under God's condemnation? Look to him who stands ascended and prays for you by name. Trust him and believe him. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your judgment, for your salvation. We need you and we love you. Praise Jesus for his salvation.